0: So, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back. If you're coming back to the Inspire Series, and if you've not joined us before, you uh, can be warm welcome. Today's going to be absolutely fantastic, and we'll do the intros at the moment. And if you haven't joined, you'll know that I do like to play an intro piece of music. I've got to be honest, I've got no reason why we chose this one. This was a choice from Andy, but I love it nonetheless. Uh, while you're all logging in, uh, do say hello to all the other attendees and, and start getting used to putting your uh, chats in. Uh, we're very keen that you do ask questions during this session. So if uh, you want to put it in the Q&A, then it's all right. But I will try to go and have a look at the chats as well. With that, uh, Prusolezzo, let me hand over to you and you can do the info. Thank you, Colin. Welcome, everyone, and
1: thank you for participating in this week's episode of the Inspire Series. My name is Kuside I'm the head of financial planning and analytics and finance. I've gained valuable transformation and digital experience during my time in consulting, so I feel honored to participate in today's episode with Andrew Baker. But before we get into that, just a short recap on last week's episode. Last week, Colin spoke to Gina Bianchini, the founder and CEO of Mighty Networks, on using digital communities to transform businesses. We heard of Gina, his extraordinary journey to building a successful platform, the 19 networks, that has now over 400,000 active communities and how these communities are positively impacting society. It was definitely worth the watch and so inspiring. This week we speak to Andrew Baker, who is the Chief Technology Officer of the APSA Group. During his time at APSA, Andrew has led a tech revolution, bringing solutions which makes him better suited to speak on transforming financial services, which is our topic for today. In this session, Colin will ask Andrew Baker to share his predictions before exploring the practical steps incumbent leaders must take if they want to thrive in a world where change is now. Thank you again for making the time today to watch what promises to be another insightful episode in our Ayoko Inspire series. And as Colin has mentioned, just remember you're more than welcome to post your questions or comments in the chat for our speaker. I'd now like to hand over to Colin who will facilitate the conversation. Thank you, over to you Colin.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. And um, I've been looking forward to this and I have to confess I've known Andy for a long time. I've worked with him for a long time. Somehow, despite that, we've remained friends and I'm absolutely honoured that he has decided to join us. Andy, welcome thanks Cole,
2: and thanks for inviting me
0: now we're going to try to cover a lot um, this is I always said at the end, I always wish there was more than an hour, and I know in advanced on this one that we 're going to run out of time very, very quickly because for anyone that doesn't know Andy, and I find that difficult because if you 're on LinkedIn and if you're involved in the tech sector you 're going to be following Andy, and if you 're not you need to go and subscribe to him on, on LinkedIn because his posts are as. Good as they are intellectually, they're equally funny, and I enjoy reading them for that fact alone, even if I don't understand half of the content that he's actually talking about. Born a technologist, I think would be the word I would describe you with. I don't think I can imagine you not being interested in coding and learning something new, and we'll be talking about that and the importance for leaders to carry on learning as well. We'll be talking about your predictions, the technologies that you are most excited about, the ones that you're playing with at the moment. And I think most importantly, trying to get your views on uh, what leadership really can do with technology in their organization. Because being honest, I look at most organizations and they really seem to struggle to go and utilize technology to the full extent. So with that, I'm going to start with the first question and let's let's get right into the technology stuff. What's the stuff that's
2: exciting you most at the moment, Andy? Um, So I guess the thing that changed this year was um, AWS well are finishing their their build out of um you know free availability zones in cape town um we've 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 been using aws for for three years but mostly in ireland and then obviously the undersea cables are always a an existential threat to your to your business and we saw that earlier this year when they they went a bit wobbly so having it in cape town is a big deal for us and the nice thing about it is it's not a technology it 's a whole suite of technologies and it 's got a really nice marketplace um, you know, so you can bring in you know, third party providers into your state into your state relatively easy so I spent a lot of time this year unpacking it. I think um, a lot of people 's AWS journey or cloud journeys are are littered with kind of media statements, but maybe not, not that much execution. And I think there's there's great reasons for that. Having you know finished a lot of training on it, I can understand why people struggle with with cloud adoption and and transforming it. It, it, it touches so much of your organization. Everything kind of doesn't work um, if you've got you know your finance processes are all geared towards buying hardware and switches, and and you don't do that anymore. And everyone wants like a you know a multi-year view on what things will cost and you know you can change it in a minute so you know notwithstanding the problems of moving technology into the cloud the actual machinery around your organization has to change a lot and so so that that's that's proved to be a lot of fun
0: but despite that i mean you make it sound like it's quite complex to go and move from your hosted solutions actually into the cloud but are you still pursuing it is this something that you believe in
2: it's complex yeah it's complex to do it well um and so um and also, you know, from a security perspective, um, the uh, AWS is, or any cloud uh, solution is, is 100% secure secureable. And it's those last three letters that, that, you know, play on my mind a lot. Um, so yeah, we, we, we put a lot of energy. There's always this trade-off in, in cloud. It's kind of built, um, you know, with kind of federation of, of, of of you know, accessing the APIs, doing what you need to do yourself. And then that obviously creates a little bit of a consistency issue. And so you're trying to get that really sweet spot where you can have teams at scale doing what they want, but doing what they want in a kind of non-explosive way. Um, and so we've put, put a huge amount of energy into that. And I've, I've really enjoyed the engineering effort that we've put around that. We came up with this, we call it a security sandwich. So we kind of put like an edge on both sides that, that is very secure. And that took quite a bit of engineering. So uh, it's worth doing. It's definitely worth doing. It changes everything. Um, it's, not, it's not a data center. I've seen some really funny um, cloud migration strategies, you know, where, and I won't mention names obviously, where, you know, um, where CIOs with a finance background, Will will go to a cloud provider and buy millions of dollars worth of pre-commit. And saying, I will, and you know, and it's a bit like it's a bit like if you shop in Sainsbury's or Woolworths, it's a bit like giving them your next three years' bills up front. You know, why would you do that? You can just go in, it's it's on the shelf, right? You don't, it isn't a data center, you don't have to pay up front. That's the that's kind of the whole obviously you'll get discounts, et cetera, but it you know it doesn't help because you've got all that money locked up in, in that cloud provider and you can't use it. It's actually an engineering problem, not a finance problem. Looks good so
0: on the balance sheet I, in the P&L though. Say again? It looks good on the balance sheet and the P&L with that discount. Yeah, it does
2: until, until you get like your utilization stats and you go, okay, <laughs> that, that little yeah. vert there just cost me $18 million yeah they don't go in the trial balance, but go
0: <laughs> what are you well, for for those that aren't in the tech space do you want to just run through why you're such a big backer of of cloud and you mentioned one of the uh, terms with your uh, secure securable
2: yeah so um, the, the the biggest thing for me is that you know there's a, there's a couple of layers around this there's a there's a human layer there's an infrastructure layer and there's a software layer um, and all of those are improved you know so From an infrastructure perspective, a lot of people will use, uh, and I'm going to deliberately avoid mentioning names, but a specific vendor for their hypervisor. And everyone will go, yeah, we know who that is. And they're very good, by the way, that vendor is very good, great discipline. What you get in AWS, uh, the Nitro hypervisor or the Zen hypervisor are on a different level. Um, So that's great. So you use that to go and Google that and research that. The hypervisor piece in AWS is great, then the human layer, you know, obviously with COVID, we're not pulling cables in data centers right now, you know, well, we, at least we weren't. And, and we, you know, the, the operational toil of running data centers is, is quite high, you know? So there's all these, this change management that you have every single bank and every single institution is doing, pulling cables, changing firewall rules, doing all that toil. And you don't do a lot of that you don't do in AWS. And then the final part is the software. Now. I'd say three or four years ago, the software was okay, um, not brilliant. I'd say that they've taken off, oh, you can see they've taken on a lot more financial services customers because some of their newer generations, things like um, Aurora as a database, I mean, and Dynamo uh, and Lambda, there's, there's some really, really awesome, there's also a lot of immature technology in the cloud providers, they tend to kind of pitch it before us, uh, from at least from a financial services perspective, But um, the software piece is the bit that actually excites me. So we're not doing toil. That's great. Uh, We have less. And and if you think about it fundamentally, what you want is everyone in your organization working for your customers. And actually, if you look at your organization, most of your people won't. right? They'll be doing something else. You know, they'll be doing things in the background that your customers won't notice. Well, they'll only notice when you get it wrong. And and so we would like to create an organization that, are, that all the oxygen in the organization is faced on like pointing at customer problems, not the toil of you know running the operational pieces of being being a sort of pan African bank. And that and that's what excites me about cloud because and
0: security issues. The security issue is totally comfortable with it. Compared to hosted, it's it's far easier and far less susceptible because obviously, report after a report coming out over the last couple of weeks, last couple of months about the massive increase at hacker attacks that are going on against financial institutions.
2: Yeah. No. Look. So, on the one hand, um, if you look at things like AWS Shield, um, their WAF, uh, and some of their security products, I'm, not, I'm just talking about AWS. You can apply this. They are very good. I mean, e- exceptional. They can, they can stand up to a two, 300 gigabyte DDoS attack, right? And for us to do that on-premise, that's quite difficult, right? So on that hand, and also things like um, CloudTrail, CloudWatch, uh, they've got security hub, they've got a, an, a, a, an assault of tools that you can deploy to kind of monitor your state. We could never do something like that on-premise. So there's a huge uplift. You obviously have to kind of configure it and get it to work for you, so that you can see what's going on. Um, so that's very, very positive. What what you what you also have to do though is you have to make sure that you build your environment in a, in a way that is fundamentally safe, right? And and safe is like kind of bunny's ears safe. You know the you, you, the Capital One case that you saw recently, where you know somebody in AWS, I think it was an ex employee, you know got I don't know, 100 million customers' data and stuff, you know, that that would have, I would argue that possibly would have been harder to do that on an on-premise, um, you know, legacy infrastructure. Um, I'm not saying, I'm not, you can do it in both, but I'm saying that if you actually read the root cause around that, you could, so so in general, you will be in a better place, especially if you put energy into it. And I think the biggest piece of advice that I can give to any teams that are going on the AWS uh, that cloud journey um, is don't split security. Don't have a separate CISO and your development teams. I'd say that because what happens is you're ready to go live and you say, hey, CISO, can you sign this off? And they're like, well, you know what, what is it? And then they're like three months figuring out what they're signing off. And, and in that time, there's pressure to put the thing live. Um, and I think that's where a lot of issues come up. If, if you put your security partners with the teams day one and they can advise and coach them, I think you remove a lot of risk. They know what they're in for. They, can, you know, they have to be part from day one of product development in, in cloud. I wouldn't, I wouldn't sit them separately. Separate report lines and they've got a separate purpose. But I would say the teams need to be cross-functional.
0: That's a critical point. We're going to come back to that in a minute, but I want to get a, um, your views on some of the other uh, technologies, which you're also focused on. Can you talk a little bit about open source?
2: I can talk for hours on that. Um, <laughs> so, um, so about, you know, about three, four years ago, Barclays decided to, to sell outset. They decided to divest of their interest from that. And, and And so when we, yeah, we we obviously there was a lot of negotiations, and we got a a settlement to kind of pull back all the services that had been pushed to London. And uh, for me, that was an exciting day because you know the the the, you know and you see this with most global banks, their model is really around these enterprise license agreements, these ELAs, where they say I'm I'm an intergalactic entity, and they go to a vendor or software provider saying I want to buy this for the universe. And so they get great pricing. I'd argue some of the products that they buy are not as great as the pricing that they've got for that. And you tend to have what I would say is a vendor affinity. I can do that as long as the answer. I can do any product you want as long as vendor X supports that. And you'd see that in our state. Three or four years ago, I'd say three or four vendors made up the entire suite of things that we did. and some of the products were OK. Some of them were shocking and, and, and not great. And then what started to happen is we'd buy software. When you look at it, it's actually all open source. So we'd be paying somebody to deliver us open source software, configure them. So <clears throat> um, what happened was we, we had a couple of big projects. One was in our Africa state where we built a payments, uh, you know, multiple payments um, uh, class, uh, types. Uh, and the project was called, called Macola, and we built that all on open source Kubernetes. Um, and then, and so we had, and we also did Debbie Check, which is a big industry thing in South Africa. We also did that, most of that, one piece was vendor, and ironically, that was the piece that gave us problems. Um, so so we, we had like a bit of a pedigree in doing open source dev, and then Valpray came along and we just supercharged it, and we've, we've never been happier. That's not to say that we don't buy software, we absolutely do but we don't buy these bundled together products that take five years to install. Things like Salesforce, that's not open source, you know, Office isn't open source. So we're really happy to buy pedigree, you know, software, but in general, the the purchasing opportunities are more at a co- component level than a product level, um, which, is, which is probably quite a, a challenge for, for software providers because, you know, a, a lot of the, the business models that they had was, we'll sell you this thing, it's, it's 50p, you know, sorry, five rand, right? Wow, I'm saving so much money. And you say, okay, can, I, can you change that button there to export it to Excel? And I say, okay, sure, it's $2,000 a day per resource, and we need someone for six months to do that. So on the one hand, you go, I got the cheapest product in the world until I need to change something. And there was a lot, and, and so the open source completely turned that on the head. One, we were able to employ South African resources on RAND base, which given where the RAND is right now, turns out to be an an awesome place to find ourselves in. So we had to bring work into the country, which I think was a good corporate thing to do. And two, we were able to react to change. You know, we ship, some of our products ship seven or eight times a day. They do product releases and and, and based on South African resources. So the the biggest problem for me on open source was upskilling. And actually, we've got a, we've we into a rhythm there. We're we're comfortable. we talked to some of the universities. We've got a digital academy, and I'm saying I, my experience of South Africa is very reactive to opportunities if if it's open and transparent.
0: So, how do you get those through um, and get support? Because we all know that most of most organizations, senior leadership teams aren't that tech savvy. Um, you're sitting there <laughs> and you're going to them and saying oh, we've got to move everything to the cloud. The regulators are coming in and go. oh, your internal colleagues in compliance and, and legal are starting to get worried. Guys are sitting there in the finance department being concerned about the technical debt that's going to have to be written off to go and move into this place. You mentioned mm. open source and it's uh, fear, fear of security, fear of complexity, you know, fear of, I guess, a lack of awareness of what it really can offer. How have you managed to go and push these things through across what is, in all honesty, a very old-fashioned organization? And
2: industry indeed with banking. So you'd be surprised actually, um, What? Uh, so the way the way that we did it is we had a couple of projects right and uh, there's a guy in CIB um, I'll mention his name is called Richard Saldi and um, I talked to him about Debbie Check and I said I want to do this on open source, I want to do it on Kubernetes and these are just words and I said I, I will do something very special uh, uh, and and we did the architecture, and he backed us, right? So, so we got backing from the business. One project, I said, "What? Well, you know, if it goes wrong, the worst thing that's hap- will happen is I get fired, right?" right. And um, you know, so, so, uh, and I knew I wasn't going to get fired, obviously, um, as I was confident it was going to be fine. Uh, and it was quite tense, I would say, the first project that we did, <clears throat> but it worked. And actually, the weird thing is, in that project, we had, as I said, we had one product that we left as vendor. And that, that's called, and now that's getting removed with open source, right? So, so the experience of it from the, the business then started to sell it internally. And said, I've got this thing, the cost of ownership is almost nothing. The guys are able to turn features around. We've got brilliant monitoring, we can, you know, and so, so it became a thing. And then we did vehicle finance. Um, and that went live earlier this year, just before COVID struck. Um, and that business is super successful, I mean we had half the number of staff available due to isolation and whatever, and the business worked perfectly all the way through covid it was you know so so if, I think if you just wake up one day and say we 're going to make the entire bank open source that 's tense you know you definitely get some 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 silence for that point. but we didn 't we just we 've just been we 've been getting good at it, and i i don 't think we 're alone anymore. I think a lot of the financial institutions and non-financial institutions are wanting to play in this space. Do yourself a favor, go to ABSA open source. And so we are not just taking from from the open source community, go to ABSA OSS, Google ABSA OSS, and you'll see that our big data team are very active there. We've done things like a mainframe to Spark Converter called Cobrix. We've done dynamic dynamic lineage in, SPI- in Spline for BCBS. So we've, we've put a lot of effort into sharing back with the communities, and we've got quite a lot of banks using our software now. So- I think
0: that actually
2: answers been... Andre's question, which I was just going to ask you directly. Do you contribute back into the open source community? Yeah, we have 30 repos. <clears throat> um, and there's two that are very popular. At Databricks Summit in Ireland, um, Spline, uh, which is our, our, our Spark lineage engine, uh, that was super, you know, super well received. We have a couple of banks in Europe using it. Quite, you know, quite a few banks in the US now use it. So that that is a big one. Cobrix going from mainframe to Spark. So from a Cobol copybook into a Spark frame. That's quite a tricky thing to do. That's very very popular. My funnest, funnest. I don't even think that's a word. My 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 happiest moment in open source was we were trying to get a, a GSLB, a load a load balancer onto Kubernetes directly. So, uh, and, um, we, and we, we approached about 10 vendors to say, solve this, you know, all the load balancer vendors, go fix this. They all failed properly, like horrifically. Uh, and Absa has got this thing called K- K8GB, Kubernetes uh, Global Load Balancer. That's uh, an open source thing. And that thing is a beautiful, it's written by a guy called Yuri in Prague. And it's a it's a beautiful piece of software. It's such We showed it to the rancher CEO and it was like, this is unbelievable. So what's I'm your advice for
0: CTOs that are trying to go and uh, push for the utilization of these technologies? You were lucky you had someone like Rich uh, who nodded his head, probably didn't understand half of what you said and supported you because he believes and trusts in you and you've got results and pedigree from uh, previous implementations. What about other CTOs? Maybe they don't have a Rich. How, how do you go and start engaging with your colleagues across the organization
2: to get support for these types of initiatives? You've got you got a couple of strategies there. I mean, you know, so typically it depends on how prescriptive your organization is around solving problems. Typically, the prescription is time and money. I've got this much money and this much time. Right. So, so if you're open source, you need less money and less time. So normally you win on that thing, and then you go, and then what you can do is you say, "Here's the vendor solution." By the way, seven of the components are open source as well. So so then it becomes then it comes down to a skills uh, you know a, a skills challenge, um, and you know my view on it is a lot of people say that you can't get the skills in South Africa. I disagree. I, I, I really think you can make them. I, my fifteen-year-old son. Uh, has got his. Uh, I, <laughs> there's a long story behind this. Not going to go into on this call, but actually I'll just shorten it. I'm not buying him a car. Right, i refuse refused to buy him a car. When he says, "When I when I'm 18, you got buy me?" No chance. So I said, "You have to do certification, and I'll pay you for that, and you can use that to get the car when you're 18." So he's got his cloud practitioner. He's 15, you know. And um, so, so my challenge is, you can't say with all the Udemy's and Corsair and brilliant content out on YouTube that you cannot make skills. My my argument is just make the opportunity and build the culture where where you have this, you know, the, the the tenacity and fortitude to see through that transformation. Don't go big early. Win, you know, go after something that's fundamentally winnable and just create that culture. We we've been at it for five years and. You know, where we are right now, we can tackle any project, anything that comes in, but we're very choosy. We don't pick things that somebody else will do a lot better than us. So I wouldn't tackle Salesforce. that would be a crazy project. You're never going to win that. I wouldn't tackle, you know, rewriting office or rewriting an operating system. We're very fussy. We pick things that our customers care about. Talk to me about that
0: skill set. We've talked about this before. Um, I think you said that it usually takes, you can't think of any instance where you'd need to train someone up for more than two years to get the necessary skill set to do anything that you wanted. Are you still standing by that? Mostly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I'd say I'm stood, I'm stood near it, uh, not, I'm not by it. Um, so, so like, uh, you know, when, when high-frequency trading came out, I was a civil engineer, okay? And within a year, I was an expert at high-frequency trading. Guess why? because it had only been around for a year. So if you look at things like you know, big data, AI, a lot of the new, you know, cl- you, I'm, a cl- I'm a cloud expert. Right? I've self-declared cloud expert. Why? Well, I got a few certs and I've been at it for a couple of years. And so my, my challenge is that if you, know, if you put the energy in, you, can, you just pick an emerging technology that you think is, and you just got the, the one thing you have to learn from history, um, don't be a purist. So uh, you know, I I really thought Betamax was the best video cassette that you could have. You know, technically speaking, it was way better than VHS. What that fight taught you is community wins. Community always wins, right? So if you're part of the small community, you ain't gonna win. Accept it, move on, move to something else. So 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 yeah, I would say whenever I pick my fights, I always go, where's the community? Even if the product isn't exactly what I want, or the you know, the, the framework or the architecture or the operating system, if that's where the community is, you can guarantee it's, it's, it's the winner. And then pick Linux and Windows, another great example. So, what can companies, and this isn't really just for banking, but what
0: can, you know, leadership teams, you know, do on that basis to go and actually get those skills in? Because, that, kind of, when I stand back, I look at it, it feels very rigid. You know, I have to employ this person with this skill set. You're giving us an alternative here. Yeah,
2: I'm gonna come back to that question. Please ask me about lock-in. So, uh, Sean's just posted on lock-in. That's a, that's a good conversation as well. So I was reading that and I wasn't paying attention to your question. What did you say? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that one again.
0: The yeah. CEOs and the leadership teams out there, if you think that you can train people up in a year or two, yeah. what's the advice to them so that they accelerate their, their, uh, their depth of digital knowledge in their organizations? just use third parties and consultants, or do
2: something else? No, no. Uh, and I think, I think that's one of, one of my challenges as well. I think you know, there is a place for that. Um, just be careful when it becomes a dependency. You know, there, There's nothing worse than every project starts with pro fees to, you know, so, so Mark, I'll give you a slightly different way of looking at it. I've been in a position where people have left my organization to work for a consultancy, and other parts of my organization has hired that guy back three months later has an expert, right, in X. And I'm like, he's not an expert, you know, he, I know him. He's not even a, there's nothing there. There's no, you know, that's not a, a ta- so, so what does that, what did that organization do to, to back? Well, they just sent him on training, right? That's what they did. They, they put him on training, they gave him access, and they said, you go and learn blockchain. You be an expert in blockchain, and we'll stand you up as the global expert of blockchain. And three months later, I'm like, that do there's you know and so 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 why don't we do that why don't we into institutionalize learning uh, why
0: why that, what exactly do you recommend for you know learning learning takes time
2: it means they're not productive it means they're doing other stuff not learning takes more time mm. so so the, 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 and, that, and, that, and that's the, that's the big lie that most organization lives in but if you look at that John Hagel is like one of the best talk public speakers on this he talks about the two models, scalable efficiency and scalable learning. And, and everyone intrinsically, all your processes will be about scalable efficiency. Can I be a little bit more efficient this time next year? And, and there is waste in learning, right? There's definitely waste. You learn some of the things I've learned, I know I'll never use, but it's way better than, it's way better than the alternative. The alternative is you just die slowly. Um, and, and and anyone can disrupt. Look at FinTechs, you know, they're not they're not relying on 20 years legacy, you know, to to they they're all about what are and they start with the zero base. They say, what are the five technologies that want to come in to solve this particular problem? But they don't say what ELAs have we got, you know, that we can use that reuse the same license of the same rubbish product to solve these customer problems. So so for me, we, we try and set aside a day a week uh and, and what we have is technical debt in there that's one of the things we do because that wastes a lot of time fixing things in production so in that day a week we try and create a clean day so we say all these things we've wasted time on this week we're going to automate them so we don't have to do that and then we and then i try and set half that day or at least a few hours of that into training my whole team uh they have to do certification every single year um i don't i don't believe in pds uh, i think they're puerile and annoying, but um, I, I do believe in, in a culture where your, your leadership team is demonstrably committed to, it's not just adware, where you're saying, we're doing you know punchlines of stuff that you're doing when you actually don't do it. So- I mean,
0: about What you just said there, I don't believe in PDs. Just expand on that. <sighs>
2: it's, <laughs> it, it's just such a bad thing. You know, the, the, the one thing, I was talking to someone about this the other day. Does everyone know um, what people are? There's an um, I don't know what it is. Personal development plans or something like that. It, it's just so wrong that, that you want team-based outcomes and you're gonna manage individuals. The best people to manage the individuals are the team, right? Instead, you say, you're the manager, you manage the people. So then everyone's kind of incentivized to have a personal relationship with the manager to be friends with him, to be, you know, you know, to, it's, like a, you know it's like one of those um, desert island things where you're trying to like, like influence the guy that's got the ring so you don't get fired or kicked off the island. It's, it's completely against the product's interest. So I, I don't believe in that. I do a, P, a team PD. I say this team's goal is to do that. Do it together, right? Now, your, your, your PD is to go do training, to go learn, to in, enhance yourself, to grow. I don't need to write that on a document, how, how horrific. Imagine if I tell someone to learn Bitcoin and then they learn Kubernetes and I said, "Yeah, you know, I said Bitcoin and you did Kubernetes, so I'm gonna to have to ding you a few marks for that. Uh, and the other thing that's really weird to me is, if you've got children, like imagine this moment, right? They're in your custody, they look up to you, you know, they want to impress you, and at the end of the year, they say, Dad, how was my year? And you say, yeah, you know, I need some improvement. You know you're good you know everyone responds really well to praise and I find it so perverse that organizations would ration praise you know they'd say so I'll tell them you're all awesome I love you and they can figure out what the little things that they need to work out within the team and and I also tell them that by the way you know the fact that I adore you doesn't mean I can give you a 20 million round bonus they're not the same thing, you know. We are limited financially in terms of how we can recognize you, but we're not limited with words and actions. And, you know, and and and, and, not, and why would you do that? And it's all this, this fixation on tough messages. I, I I really don't enjoy it. I think it's very counterproductive. I think it's praise and and adoration and respect and you know encouragement. But teams work brilliantly under those circumstances. So I don't like PDs. I think
0: they are. How do you work out how to pay, um, everyone I think is gonna resonate about the power of teams when they're working well and they're functioning together and the manager no longer needs to be managing because they've got that nice flywheel effect. They're all helping each other. Yes. It's incredibly difficult to work out which member of the team is better than the others and who to pay more and the impact of a certain person in terms of their importance. How do you deal with that?
2: So, so we don't, we we don't generally. Actually, um, there there is a uniformity of our pay at a team level, and um, and and high functioning teams are paid a little bit more, and teams that need a little bit more help get a little bit more advice and supervision and help and elevation. But um, at the end of the day, there's not a big difference. Actually, it turns out it's about skills and experience and contribution. And in the teams, there are definitely individuals with high skills that would demand high pay. And the market kind of figures that out. And if you get it wrong, they'll leave, right? So so we don't get it wrong. We make a focus around making sure we keep talent. And we make sure that that talent is incentivized to create versions of itself so that we scale the knowledge of that individual. Versus telling that person, you do all these things and they hold on to knowledge. And then they don't share with the team. And so we try and incentivize them the other way. Share with your team and lift everyone up and you will be recognized for that. How do you deal with the
0: people that find that tricky? Because they've got aspirations of becoming the next CEO, CTO, getting into the top level. They like the relationship with their manager and to to go and manage the network and the politics. I advise
2: strongly against it. There be dragons. Uh, The greasy pole. (laughs) it's no so so i i, I yeah I, I i don't i don't funny enough I, I don't we don't really create that culture of management aspirations um so so we've we've introduced this thing called a principal engineer which which is the opposite of that which basically says we'll recognize you for being an awesome engineer like a director engineer or a senior so we're trying to create a technical hierarchy not that I'm a fan of hierarchies but technical recognition um, and I think we're about to announce our first cohort of principal engineers I think it would be about half a dozen that made it through and I did the interviews for like a for that. And I, I had such fun with the guys I kept changing my my requirements and kept messing with them and they had a day to design Twitter on AWS so um so that that was fun so we we encouraged people you know, and and the thing about it the other way, why would you want to create an organization around management? Like that, ma- surely management is like a taxation of energy. You know, like what it, what a bad way to spend your day managing. Wouldn't it be better if you could just get stuff done? So, um, so I still I still work, I still learn, I still help people with designs and architecture. I, I don't feel my contribution is about being in an office on the seventh floor with carpet, you know, and volavons outside my room and a yeah, you know, that, that I don't know. That's probably like a bad thing, but like prawn sandwiches. That that isn't my contribution to Absa. It's actually helping guys figure stuff out. Go back to the other example you mentioned that on that cloud
0: uh, program, the importance of cross-functional teams, where you are bringing yes. in the you know the security guys, the compliance guys up front. Can you just expand on how powerful that is across other
2: examples that you've worked on? It's key. It's actually key. Um, so, the, the, the functionalization thing is horrific in software development, and only accountants back it. So, if you think about Henry Ford, um, I, you know, his functionalization rate, what he did with Ford motor cars was brilliant. He functionalized everything. There was probably like a global head of the right light wing nut tightening right? I'm sure there's someone who had that title in and he was the guy that was responsible for the right wing nut on the front line and his job was to tighten it. And software development, so what, why was that so successful? Well, it turns out making co- uh, motor cars is all about zero tolerance. It's no deviation. It's making 50,000 things that look identical and it turns out robots do that a lot better than humans anyway and robots are functional and I get it, right? So in engineering terms, zero tolerance, low discovery, low variance, that's key. That's the opposite of software development. Software development is about width of solutions and, 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 and iterations and evolving something, not starting off with someone who's head of something arbitrary and random that blocks your project. So I've had projects before where load balancing stopped me going live. I'm like, you know, that, that's just weird. Why, would load balance, why wouldn't I be able to consume a load balancing service in my teams? And so, for me, I want a sec, zero segmentation on my teams, full stack. That doesn't mean that everybody does everything. There obviously will be specializations. What we do is, you know, for example, databases, we sit it behind an orchestration API. Um, and what, what changes then is that this is, this is such a long conversation. So, so right now my DBAs deal with production issues and, and they create another database, that's what they do. But actually in the world where all of that goes away, I use RDS, it's managed by someone else, the orchestration is just an API, they're like, I've got nothing to do. You know, I'm so scared, what am I gonna do with my life? And, and they say, well, hold on a second, how big is that database? And they go, it's 40 terabytes. I'm like, is that good? Not really. Wouldn't it be great if you create an archiving service that takes care of that? And when the guys want it, it dynamically brings it back. Oh well, yeah, that's pretty cool. So then, then, you, have, then you have fraud, internal fraud. And you say, well, what happened there? Someone injected a row in that table and we didn't see it because they deleted the logs. And so, so we move people from an operational mindset into a kind of like a digital mindset where they are almost something that could exist outside your organization that anybody would want to buy Versus a grudge purchase—that's the ABSA way, or the Standard Bank way, or the whatever way. Do you never
0: worry about um, the control and oversight, though? Because the concern, I think, has been historically when you bring people together, cross-discipline, multifunctional—you've basically yep. got the power to do everything, and you yes. can break things. And therefore, there's this kind of real, you know, this this wish and desire to go and have people the police. Yes, uh, what, if They think that's going to improve the or reduce the likelihood that these bad things will happen. Is that your experience or is it rather
2: the reverse? It's, no, it, you can have that, right? Definitely. You can even have that in the old world. You know, people talk to each other anyway. They deal with each other day in, day out. So, so you can have it in the functional world and you can definitely have it. In the, what we argue is we architect the software, you know, so we create immutable locks. They're immutable. Right You can't mess with them. We, we do all these protection factors. We have imperva, we have uh, software that spots you jumping onto a database. we have Counterbridge that looks at the alerts, runs AI and says, "That's weird. Why would you pull you know a, a gigabyte of data down onto a laptop? So, so you can't just do it. everything changes and you have to think about everything and, so, and, that, and that's, that's the fun part of being a CCO, not just saying "I've got this wacky idea and I think it won't blow the bank up." You actually have to engineer every edge of it all the way through. So a huge amount of time going into things like elastic searches, forensic searches. That means if anything happened over there, I'll definitely see it. And you test it. You actually have a little team that tests. Is that control working? Now you wanted to talk about lock-ins. Yes. Yes. So thank you for whoever posted that one. Um, So I guess there's, two ways to think of that. I'm locked into a physical data center. I'm locked into the hardware that's in that physical data center because it's on my balance sheet. And I'm locked into the software that's on that hardware because there's an ELA and it's three. So there's always a lock-in. But it's a fair observation that when you move from A to B, are you trading up, down or sideways? And what you see with most of the cloud providers, including Azure and AWS, is they have a marketplace. So you can choose, do you want to use their WAF or do you want to buy a WAF? And if you buy that WAF, can you buy that WAF somewhere else? But the most interesting thing about cloud for us um, is really Kubernetes. Um, so, so I don't see the cloud as a hypervisor, you know, where I want to stand up like machines and load balance and figure out all that nonsense. Actually, the, the, the you know, the Kubernetes environment, and not just KA, also look at K3 or K3S um, because that orchestration over containers is very, very powerful. So we've created a product called Subatomic. And what that did is it said, actually developers shouldn't care where we are. So you go from your code and it goes all the way through a build pipeline to somewhere. Now that can be, we've obviously got 10 countries. Some of those countries are not very cloud friendly. So we can literally run super micro hardware in that country and deliver Kubernetes into that. So we can deliver the solutions there or we can deliver it into a cloud provider or another cloud provider. And whilst AWS has 180 products, we as a, as, a, as a team support about 50 of them. And we're very careful about which ones we pick. Sometimes we pick things like Lambda because it's profound in terms of its impact from a technology-wise, but a lot of the times we go, actually, we prefer Postgres. We prefer we prefer commodity software that can run on any cloud provider. so we're careful about the stitching in we accept that there's an exit wound you know so if we left our cloud provider, we accept that there's an exit room it the payback is like six months you know so for me to move from on, for me to move on-prem to AWS, The timing of that is all about depreciating the hardware, selling the hardware on when when you've got off of it. We're we're doing a lot of machinery in there to avoid impairments and to have an orderly transition from the world that we know today to the world that we want to be in. I hope that answers their question.
0: What I want to do now, we've got about um, 15 minutes and I want to um, start bringing things back towards uh, the title now. What have we got so far the title being you know transformation in financial services um yes. some of the suggestions that you've gone through you know not not purchasing systems based on large franchise-wide <laughs> discounts especially when mm-hmm. those particular platforms are not necessarily very good yeah. um, and these are the extreme versions no management you know mm-hmm. in terms of setting these things up continual learning and the encouragement of continual learning across those teams mm-hmm. focusing on the positives and the upside Um, across those teams rather than the sort of directional aspects of it. It's easy to give away uh, compliments if they're genuine. It's quite difficult to do that with budget-constrained monetary mechanisms. Um, Accessing and using things like the cloud over time and being comfortable to go and start exploring things in, in open source. These are really difficult things for many organizations to actually start even thinking about, let alone even applying because of their Mm. Um, their legacy. How do you start that kind of change in mindset to get this open, communal, self-sufficient flywheel kind of mechanism going? Because there's no clear direction. There's no strategy at the end of
2: this that you're setting, Andy. So you you can relate to this, right? You you're from Somerset. Um, just for everyone's benefit, Colin was born in a place called Wookiee Hole, um, <laughs> which. <laughs> Google it, it's very funny, um, so, and and like, I don't know, 60, 70 years ago, electricity came along, and uh, in our part of the world, in the farming part of the UK, we were very scared to turn the light switch on, you know, we stared at that switch for week after week after week, and specifically Wookiee hole people, um, you know, they, they took 10 more years to figure out how to turn the light switch on, and so it turns out fear is your biggest obstacle, and what we the way that we dealt with that is demos so actually everyone in your organization typically wants your organization to win and they're scared of open source because it's like a word right and they could just google it and they can see all the cves they don't realize what you have already has as many vulnerabilities in there and you you know how you design security is actually about constantly refreshing software not sitting looking at software that's 10 years old so I spent a lot of energy taking risk and audit and compliance people and saying, come, look at this. And when you show people and you sit there and they actually can see the thing running and they go, wow, there's a moment where they go, this isn't bad, this is really good. I don't know what to do with it, but I, I support it. And, and so in my experience, I, I, I genuinely think that, that most organizations would adopt know, modern ways of working, modern technology, if you took the time to take the people through who you perceive are blockers, because actually nine times out of ten, they're not blockers at all. They well, just let's come, don't in, let's come in from a different angle then,
0: Andy. So um, yeah. in our um, five minutes of preparation for today's call yesterday, we <laughs> talked, <laughs> we did prepare, we talked yeah. about... Um, What's your preference? I guess that was the question. What is your preference? Would you prefer to have a six, 12 month timeline to deliver a specific thing and a two billion rand budget or five or six people around you, a couple of whiteboards, you know, and um, a bit of a kind of a challenge as to what you're trying to do, which, which is your preference here? Maybe I'll B. give you a hundred thousand rand on the B as B. well.
2: B. Can you B. explain B. that
0: because hundred thousand rand, six people on a whiteboard doesn't feel like a strategic path to grow a company exponentially. And yet you're saying it does.
2: Yeah. The only thing that matters is durable teams. That, you know, so, so this whole SI, OPEX, run the bank, build the bank, change the bank, all rubbish. It's just, it's just a waste of energy. It's people and problems. And, and and so you have to engineer that. So the most valuable thing for me is like capacity to deal with the stuff that's going to come through without asking constantly for SI. You, you, we have projects in some organizations, not, not necessarily or oh, my organization, but I've seen projects, I've talked to you know, people in other companies, they have a project that's 200,000 rand. I'm like, what is the governance cost of a project that's two, about 300,000 rand? Like surely something's a little bit weird there. So, so I, I can't stand the concept of a project because typically what it means is I'm going out to someone To pay someone five million rand a year for something that I could do myself for half a million rand a year if there was a long-term commitment to that person. And so projects are just a rubbish container for work. They're the opposite of Docker. Docker's a great place to put workload. Projects are bad. There's nothing good. You put them on your balance sheet and you cry about them for years. Um, and you wish I hadn't spent all that money. And then you try and ravage your operational teams to pay for the stupid project that costs 10 times the amount of money that it should have done. So I believe in durable teams. And then they say, well, what if your teams don't have the right skills? Train them. And so we go back to the same thing. Watch John Abel's thing. Scalable learning, scalable efficiency. It has to be scalable learning. This is
0: really difficult though. If I was the CEO of an incumbent bank and I want to go and create this more digitized offering, everything you're telling me doesn't feel right. I feel like I should be bringing in the consultants, spending a huge amount of research, doing a massive system architecture piece of work, yeah. and then hiring the people or using the consultants to go and put a free four-year projects in place where at some point there'll be some deliverables which are going to make the customer experience and the internal control functions super, super happy. Is, yeah. is
2: that not the right approach? Well, there's a couple of things that stand up for me in that question. One, the likelihood of you being a CEO of a big bank is nil. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> so I don't think I to worry about that much. But yeah, you're right. That, you know, that, that there is an assurance fixation in most organizations and they will believe they don't have the skills and they don't. Yeah, and, 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 and make no mistake. People sell change as a series of Gantt charts and milestones, and it's nothing to do with that. Change is a war, right? It's messy, it's ugly, things go wrong, people get in. You know, it's it's, it's a a rough thing to do, any level of change. So we just want to create this kind of sanitized view of it on PowerPoint that says, you know, we'll just do this on this day, and we'll just do this on this day, and these things are dependent on each other, and we create these dependency, rubbish absolute rubbish in my experience the opposite is true every single day wake up and think am I doing the right thing can I do anything different can I try something else out is there an edge that I can play with here what can I trade off and just replan it all in your mind so you live it breathe it and you know eat it and sleep it and so so I don't believe in the in the in the pomposity around change and the order and structure around change because it's not real it's fake, it's fabricated. Nothing works like that in change. How do, you so direction, how do you keep the, uh, um,
0: the direction consistent across the multiple parties you know, that are involved so that you don't have huge amounts of duplication or uh, you know, data that's fragmented across your organization? How do you keep some level of control so that you get the benefit of being an organization and not just a series of unique startups doing randomly different things?
2: Yeah, okay, so, 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 so centralization is terrible. Federalize, federalization is terrible for different reasons they both create one creates massive order but slowness and choke points the other one creates chaos and duplication whatever and right in the middle is this great space an integrated workforce and so so I, I, I believe in an integrated model, and that means that you you have to design for democracy you can 't expect things just to, to vote themselves into order doesn 't come from 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 that world that you're describing right now. So when we when we when we take a data platform, for example, we don't want to create queues of people with BRDs asking for data. We design it in such a way that it is consumable by our customer. So so you have, we always try to split things into core engineering, and then and then stuff that is consumable by my, multiple business units that we don't need any operational overhead on. So there is an absolute benefit in consistency and scale. As long as you don't add the word choke. And typically, choke is in there. As soon as you say, I'm going to give you scalable efficiency, what you're also saying is, I'm going to choke you. You're going to queue and you're going to wait for five years and maybe I'll give you some information.
0: Now, Craig Bond has gone on from his time at ABSA to um, chair a startup. I think it's a Stanford startup, eight or 10 people called Envil. They're offering a AI-driven banking experience with all the gamification that comes with that. And we've also got in South Africa a very similar uh, piece happening with Zero Bank expected to come through uh, later in this year from uh, Michael Jordan, ex-CEO of FMB. There are challenger banks popping up all over the place. Is this something that you're worried about? Because obviously... You're quite unique, Andy, and you're you're working in a in a way which most organisations, particularly in financial services, are going to find very difficult to go and do. You're suggesting it's incredibly important you do if you're going to keep up with the wave of technology that's out there. Are you mm. therefore worried that banks, the incumbents, are just too slow and they are going to get ridden over by these startups? Not
2: really. Uh, I, I I I I I try not to be. I think fear and looking over your shoulder. Um, they're not good energies, you know. So, so stuff can happen. You, you, I'm not saying that it won't. You know, bad things won't happen. And you know, already we've seen a very disruptive en- entrant into the South African banking market that was extremely successful, right? So, so you know, challenge challenge is not new, actually. And uh, and I, I think I think that at a certain point you get sort of saturation. Um, uh, The bigger bigger play for me isn't does somebody create another banking experience for another app, you know, you've got time, Capitech's been extremely successful, you've got banks, everyone's going to be at this forever and eternity. So you mustn't just spend your whole life worrying about cannibalization. The big, big play actually is to move from a digitized bank to a digital bank And, and that that is actually where the battle will be won and lost, in my view. Everyone is worried, creating digitized experiences, paper-free this, paper-free that, you know, um, that, that that's great. That will get that that is where we are going to be for the next few years. The digital bank is really where it becomes very interesting because the disruptive ability of a pure thoroughbred digital bank is multi-geography, you know, and multi-product. And that and that can be way more disruptive than going into yet another bank, doing another FICA process, moving your beneficiaries, all the toil that goes with the new bank, another digital bank, that, that's not that exciting for me. I, I, don't, I don't see that as a big deal. If I'm on take a lot, and I want to buy a 36 inch TV, or that session, sorry, should, it shouldn't be, 56, 86 inch, a big TV, right? <laughs> I am thinking my monitor, sorry, um, I want to buy a big TV, like going to go and do something with a bank is rubbish. To to get banking wit to follow me, that's interesting. You know, so so I I, I think that's where the battlefield will, will be won and lost over the next few years.
0: Simon, welcome.
3: Hi, Colin. Thanks very much. Hi, Andy.
0: Hey, Simon. I'm sure you've got a question for Andy, Simon.
3: Yeah, I think the the point he's touching on now is is how do you take banking to, to that client destination. You know, there's a lot of talk about some players implementing API gateways, but if I was uh, leading a bank and wanting to connect with, uh, with three FinTechs in a year's time, what are, what are three critical success factors, Andy, that you think
2: uh, c- can get us along that road? So the, the, for me, the the, the biggest barrier from, a, from an API perspective or, you know, like a truly digital bank, uh, there's two that jump out to me. The, the first one is identity. Um, I, think, I think digital identity is, is, is no one's done a great job of that. Some countries have started to create a scheme, but it's not self sovereign. Um, and, and so uh, on my LinkedIn post somewhere, you'll see this thing about self sovereign identity. That is a com- We can do that for an hour and go through why I'm really believe that if you get that right, you can have digital banks. Um, because in that in that scheme, in that in that digital identity that represents me via a cert, via homomorphic encryption, via whatever mechanism, I can have one key thing, and the key key thing that's missing right now, and Poppy and uh, you know a number of other, um, GDPR, they're all trying mm-hmm. to allude to this. It's this idea of consent. So so you have to have digital identity in order to consent to things, and both those things are not solved right now. So anyone who comes into the market, you've got GovChat, you've got a load of new channels that are coming in, and the biggest problem to doing any banking is who am I banking with? Um, yeah. and, and if you solve that at an industry level, things get quite interesting.
3: Agreed,
0: yeah.
2: Cole? Simon, we've got two
0: minutes to go. Do you want to close us out? And I might have just one last question for Andy if there is time once you're done there, Simon.
3: Cool. I just, uh, I mean, we've watched over the last five odd years, Andy, if it is that long. And I think it's just been amazing how APSA has freed you up to really think about what it means to be a digital bank and the way you've approached it, I think that has come through today. Uh, you know, in the sense that you really are about capabilities, teams, how one delivers modern digital change, how you've championed things like uh, cloud, blockchain, open source, zero knowledge proof, uh, (laughs) sovereign identity that you were chatting to now. We won't get you started again, Uh, but, uh, but you really have been the guy that's been given the space to lead technology in a large financial services uh, organization at the highest level. And that uh, that reputation is spoken about all over the place. So we really thank you, I think, as Ioko for, for popping in today to share these insights. They will inspire people in the manufacturing industry. They will inspire telcos and certainly get our clients thinking about things, uh, things differently. And, and what I can tell you that what you've seen uh, on the outer of the cereal box with Andy Baker today, it really is on the inside too. In all our work with you, these are the things you champion, the things you drive, and, and, and this is the game that we've had to show up in um, as, as you've led APSA forward. It's been a, a privilege to work with you as an organization, and, and we really thank you for the, the time you've given us as a team today. Yeah, so massive thanks, Andy, and we're looking forward to, to more of these and more of these insights into the future.
0: Cool. Thank Thank you. you And then um, so in two weeks time, we've got Tony Saldana. Just before I I go on to that, though, please leave your feedback on the chat channel. It really does mean a lot and helps us get better and uh, think about who we're going to invite. Um, For this particular season of Inspire, we've got Tony Saldana coming up in two weeks. It's going to be back onto the Thursdays. He wrote the book Why Digital Transformations Fail, which is in the Amazon bestseller list for Um, in the uh, change management section, and it's going to be fascinating. Maybe next time we should actually get him on with Andy. I think it could be a really interesting debate. I'm going to leave you with uh, asking Andy a question. Andy, you can close out on this one. Can you give me your honest opinion about the benefit of PowerPoint and email in an organisation? Oh my gosh.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I, I don't do email. Um, so I, d- I don't understand it. I, I think it's, it's vexing and taxing and I don't, I don't have the energy for it. There's lots of, and the beauty is I don't, I still don't think people, some people realize that I don't read them. I just I just don't read them at all. Um, so uh, I just, I can't figure out how to do a reply all, or reply or, you know, and then, and then and it just, Colin, you sent me that great thing. I forgot the name of the guy, Vinnie Jones, the email tree. And I laughed my head off at that. I, I, I cannot stand emails, um, so so don't get me started on that. PowerPoint um, equally rough. Um, just it's just a bad thing. So I, I remember at Stanford University they were focused on fuzzy felt. Everything you had to do, you did on fuzzy felt, and I really enjoyed that because I thought it's a you know it's something you it's low fidelity and you're not precious about your idea and you feel stupid with fuzzy felt as well. It's quite it's quite humbling. So my my, my any organization to be successful. Uh, use a chat channel and fuzzy felt for your projects.
3: We'll go and look it up.
2: Cool. Thank you very much. Simon, thank you very much. And for everyone on the call, we've gone over by
0: two minutes. We'll see you in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks all. Thanks, Colin. Cheers. Thanks.
1: Thank you, Bye, guys.